I'm here with Casey Vernon and Amanda Pittman. I'm really happy to be here uh, in my own office that I haven't left in a while. I'm happy to be in this Zoom meeting with you. My background with regard to death um, is, I guess, most visibly the fact that I worked as a forensic death investigator for about seven years of my 20s. Uh, I was the Albany County coroner uh, here in Laramie for about three and a half years. And then I worked in upstate New York in Onondaga County, which is where Syracuse is. Um, but that jurisdiction also includes like Utica, Rome, and some of the other um, smaller metropolitan, well, sm <laughs> uh, smaller towns and, and cities uh, in that area. I also used to be a death investigator, um, but here in Albany County, I guess I've been interested in um, justice issues and um, inequality issues for a really long time. I can introduce Amanda if you want me to take a whack at it. Let's do it. If you, if you want to, sure. Uh, I met Amanda when we were both... Um, I want to say maybe like 21 or 22. We were taking a, an anthropology class together. Um, it was like a small kind of a discussion group class um, about Jared Diamond, actually. There were some interesting personality dynamics in the class. We'll just say that like Amanda was really feisty and assertive in like a really good way. Um, but as usual, uh, was like kind of told, can you stop being so mean to the middle-aged men in this class. Um, Stop hurting the boys' feelings. And so I just thought she was great. Um, and then, I don't know, maybe six months later, I was running for office. Um, I was, it was when I was running for coroner. And I got called to a um, possible human remains, like kind of an excavation as a, as a deputy and the coroner, um, the man who was the coroner at the time, and I both went. And I show up and there's um, one of the archeology span and anthropology professors from the university. And then there's this girl I know from this one class. She's in, like inside of a pack rat midden. A pack rat midden, and this one in particular was like inside a cave, right? Like this little bitty, like, gross little cave and then it's just like trash and sticks it's it's a nest for like rodents it's not a thing you want to be like crawling around in it's you know it's gross um <laughs> or at least this is the way i think of things uh but she's like just crawling around on her hands and knees and i was like oh my gosh that girl is so creepy and cool. And like, I was so impressed with like someone's like dedication to like maybe finding a bone uh, to like be, I don't know. I was not gonna get in there without like a certain degree of prodding. So uh, <laughs> I, I said, if I end up winning the election, you know, you should come work for the coroner's office. Uh, and then, and then I did and the rest was sort of history. 
Um, yeah, so I did start a little bit, a little while before that and worked for Tom for a while. And um, I had been doing like human osteology and like forensic anthroanalysis uh, with Rick at the professor at the university. So I was definitely interested in um, like human culture and like human history as told through human remains and that kind of intersection between biology and culture is really fascinating for me. And the coroner's office definitely proved to be another, like another manifestation of that, I suppose. Um, because you're working with families and you're working with decedents and um, in some of the most like intimate and terrible times of people's lives and working to kind of find answers for them and and give them, if not peace, at least a little bit of truth was really rewarding. You know, you talk about um, how this is such a terrible time for, how that's such a terrible time for people. And obviously no one would doubt that. Um, and it also seems to be uh, situated in a certain way or constructed in a certain way in this in, in the kind of economic system that we have and the kind of social system that we have. And I think that's a good uh, prompt for having you talk about having the two of you talk about the death collective and what that organization is all about. From my perspective, a lot of the experiences that I had um, or the collective experience that I had in death investigation um, is a huge part of what inspired um, me to be part of the death, initially just the death cafe and then the, the death collective as a whole, because, um, the sort of society level, um, systemic problems that I saw, uh, with the way that people have to deal with death and also choose to deal with death. Um, some of those problems can be, I think, alleviated just by, uh, sitting down and talking about something that we don't, that we try really hard not to talk about um, and just being deliberative. Obviously, I love deliberation. So uh, really upsetting things. Um, I think about the way that we die in this country is that it's um, very isolated a lot of the time and very individual. And we can talk more, I think, a little bit about that later because um, it ends up being a pretty big topic. Uh, but also people are blindsided uh, so much of the time. Um, you know, family members or friends or even like healthcare providers are just, you know, really uh, seem to often be under the impression that people don't die or that it's, um, I don't, they just have a lot of misconceptions. Uh, I think um, people just basically don't think about death at all. And that causes, um, you know, just a general, uh, general lack of awareness um, of your own impending uh, death of the, you know, mortality of the people around you. And a lot of the time that lack of awareness um, 
turns into a lack of sort of material preparedness, which I would submit is um, not an accident. Death, death right now in our society is very, it's either completely ignored and completely not expected, or it's very medicalized toward the, toward the end of life. And it's, it's not regarded as an inevitability necessarily. And, and you can definitely see that there's a, a money motive in there for, you know, this illusion to be maintained that, you know, we can, we can keep you going with the power of modern medicine, you know, that kind of thing. Like, and, and there's like, there's very much a lack of acceptance that it's okay to let your family member go if they're if it's their time and if it if if everybody's their body and their life is moving toward that it's okay at at some point to stop medical interventions and at some point that doesn't create more good life it just creates more life but it doesn't create a, a longer quality of life. I mean, there, there are so many different ways from, from that, from the medicalization of death to the commoditization of the funeral industry to the way that we ignore people, people's living needs, people's living mental or material needs, that, that things are, that death, death is ignored and kind of pushed out of the way. And so I guess I guess the thing with with the death collective would be that it's a way to at least the cafe is a way to get people to try and think about mortality and think about what that means for the rest of their life um for the rest of their family's life um and the death collective as a whole is is kind of a way to kind of give people more power in end of life situations and more knowledge because because it does like like Casey said it does blindside people even if even if a relative is is quite elderly and and ill very few people make preparations or know what they want or ask that person what they want or or anything like that so i think having having an awareness of it in the present and in life is really important. And that's, that kind of brings, brings us to the concept of death positivity, which isn't necessarily wanting to die or think, or like being happy about it or anything. It's, it's, it's more like accepting it and being prepared and facing it. And that, I think that's really important. Dying. Um, and death, like death care, uh, are these like in, like almost private, intensely personal, individual um, events rather than like familial or broader community events. You know, it's it's part of the the whole pattern of creating nuclear families as a. Uh, com- you know, component of an industrial or post-industrial economy. Fundamentally, what we're talking about is sort of the accumulation of um, different kinds of almost universal power, like the power over your own 
um, birth experience or end of life experience, your own death, your own, the disposition of your remains. Uh, there are these, you know, very formal, um, sterile, medicalized structures in place um, to provide both an illusion of safety uh, or of control in times that are fundamentally out of control and um, precarious or at least intense. Also, that serves to accumulate capital and uh, power in a particular direction. And this especially came to be true uh, when the church initially began its uh, persecution of what it termed witches, um, which was usually, you know, women who had, who were midwives, who had medicinal knowledge, who had herbal knowledge, you know, this, it was a very long uh, process to go from people taking care of uh, their most fundamental experiences um, with their families and with their communities to having, you know, one uniform sort of system that has been largely stripped of meaning. The industry quickly became um, very, very powerful and has been able sort of on a, like, uh, I don't know, a statute level at like, and also in kind of a patchwork, has been able to get quite a, quite a bit of exclusive power over the disposition of human remains. Um, depending on where you are, it can be very difficult to put a dead body um, in, a, in an appropriate place, like whether that be like in the ground, you know, or um, a cremation or whatever. Uh, it's not something that you are like capable necessarily of doing on your own, depending on where you live from a legal standpoint, from a logistical standpoint, from, um, from a knowledge standpoint. Um, you know, most people would just would not have the first idea what to do if they were expected to arrange for the disposition uh, of a deceased person. So you're kind of held captive to this industry. But you're um, saying it's not about wanting to deprofessionalize or despecialize those aspects of that endeavor that require some level of expertise. Uh, correct. Absolutely. I, I certainly don't think that like it should be my, my preferred model is not like all DIY funerals and that's it. Um, I think there's definitely a way and uh, historical precedent for, um, you know, for there to be specialists, mortuary specialists in the community. I'm like, that's, that's great. Uh, I'm totally, totally down with that. Um, and uh, I used to have actually stronger feelings about um, some mortuary practices that are like fairly recent um, and Western innovations, but I've kind of kind of pulled back um, on some of that. But anyhow, a, a person is sort of beholden to an industry um, that you know even even for the very basic, most like um, 
simple uh, funeral, there is a very, there's a considerable cost. Um, and a lot of it is, um, you know, almost administrative, like you pay for the plot, you know, in which someone is buried, um, there's fees and, and so forth. Um, and that really is uh, extremely difficult for an enormous amount of people. Um, it's financially, uh, potentially financially ruinous. There is quite a bit of aid from the state, um, but obviously I don't, uh, given my like personal politics, I don't feel that that is a sufficient measure. With that aid comes a complete removal in the way the, in the, way the system is set up today. With any aid from the state in burying your loved one comes a complete removal of all agency and all ability to be there for that person. And in, in a lot of cases, it means that your loved one will be buried anonymously, essentially. So you kind of have a choice between, you know, going bankrupt or for some people, or, you know, just not being able, just not being able to afford burying someone or getting, having them cremated, just having, doing anything for the disposition of the remains, um, or having the state do it and losing all access and all control over that disposition. If, uh, Matt, I don't know if you wanted to talk about Hard Island. But is, that the, is that the mass graves uh, in New York? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, you know, what kind of sparked me wanting to talk to you two about this was uh, the, was two things really. The first is what we haven't mentioned at all, uh, you know, which is that we're, we're in the middle of a pandemic and that in certain areas, uh, you know, there's going to be um, a lot of death happening very close together and very frequently in an accelerated way, which in some places that's always been the case. Um, but this is going to be more of that. And then the other part is, uh, you know, this, uh, uh, you know, there, there was this report of, of that prisoners have always um, as part of their work been digging these mass graves. And I know that that's something that has been, really thought provoking um, to you guys. And, and so I would love to hear about um, both or either or any of that in any particular order that you want to take it. Oh, we have thoughts. <laughs> yeah, we can, <laughs> we can go on about Heart Island. Um, about, about Heart Island and like, and the, not just Heart Island, but there, the various, you know, mass grave or, um, or mass anonymous grave. Um, not necessarily that they're all in one place, but that they are, that folks are buried anonymously or cremated, then buried anonymously all over the country. Yeah, yeah, let's hear it. Go for it. Um, so, so there, there are, and this is a, this is a wide patchwork of systems across the country because the the death care system and, and the coroner system 
um, a lot of times um, what they call indigent burials or burials of people who can't afford to pay um, are covered by the coroner if that, that was their case. Um, and so you'll see like coroner's offices, sheriff's offices, like in California to, to Hart Island have just mass numbers of unmarked graves and or or graves that were marked by numbers but the records have been lost or shelves of cremated remains or or various things or in some counties in in the southwest um you'll see where there there are mass graves of immigrants who died and they're buried anonymously and and (laughs) In that particular in that particular case, very disrespectfully, um, there the the human remains, the human bodies, are treated literally as garbage, and it's it's incredibly infuriating. And then when you get to Hard Island, you have this weird strange interplay between Har Island and the prison system because it is correct me if I'm wrong Casey but it's owned by the Bureau of Prisons is that correct yeah I believe it's own it's the Department of Corrections um oh yeah Department of Corrections uh, and then it's the the grave digging is done by prisoners I know yes which has kind of been um on, like, off and on I think for quite a long time uh in New York for, for for decades. It's actually considered the uh, largest mass grave in, I think in the United States, but it also might be one of the largest mass graves in the world. Um, I think over a million people have been buried there. And that's been since the, what, 1800s? Something yeah, like that? Been, it's been a long some, time. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of New York um, has been used as cemetery like has been used for multiple purposes and at one point was like used as a uh, a cemetery there are like there are multiple locations um where that's true uh but it's been used um yeah for i think at at least since the 60s or 70s um as a potter's field uh which is you know of what i don't know it's a, i guess it's a term of art for a public cemetery um and right now, or until recently, I guess they're talking now about um, doing some temporary burials um, of uh, COVID deaths should um, mortuaries be overwhelmed otherwise. Uh, but up, in, up until recently, up until that, um, the island was just used to bury um, people who had been indigent or people who were unidentified or unclaimed. Um, as well as um, stillborn babies. Um, I think actually quite a significant percentage of the burials on Har Island um, are stillborn babies because in the hospital, um, the, I don't, I don't know, healthcare workers are sort of um, uh, empowered or encouraged to offer the Children's Health Insurance Program which can, um, or not the Children's Health Insurance Program, but the, um, but the, 
they're empowered to offer like state insurance that can pay for a burial. Um, so there are, you know, a lot of, a lot of people buried there and they are buried by inmates, um, through the New York, uh, department of corrections and all of the testimonial surrounding these burials is that should, you know, um, a family member or a loved one of yours be, you know, unidentified at the time of their burial and then later identified if you, um, you know, would like to disinter them and, uh, you know, move, um, move their final resting place to somewhere else. Uh, it's a difficult process because, um, records are not, uh, kept particularly meticulously. There are, you know, there have been multiple people who found errors in the records, um, where, you know, bodies are missing or not where they're supposed to be, um, and so on and so forth. Um, there was kind of a, I don't know, kind of a minor eruption of, of, um, kerfluffle about this. I want to say probably around 2014, 2015 in sort of East coast publications or like New York focused publications. Um, I think the New York times ran like a number of, of small pieces about Heart Island. Um, and one of the main points of uproar from, I don't know, the citizenry from people who had commentary uh, was not that it was weird that there was a mass grave and not that it was weird that like this island is managed by the DOC. And I mean, there's like a lot of things to be upset about here. Right. Um, but the thing that people were primarily upset about was like, how dare they let inmates like touch the bodies? Like, Oh, that's so disrespectful to the, to the dead people because people who are incarcerated are so, I don't know, otherized. Not that it's disrespectful to the inmates to have them, you know, dick yeah. or anything. Not but. that it's disrespectful in the first place to like bury people in a mass grave. Um, yeah, yeah. Which, I mean, I think an argument can be made, you know, that it's not disrespectful. Um, but given our current, you know, framework, I think we'd at least like to pretend there's an idea that um, we don't, we associate mass graves with um, international, you know, criminal violations uh, and not, you know, just something happening next to the Bronx. It's interesting that that nobody really was bothered. I mean, I'm sure there were people, but that the that the real outcry wasn't also that the people who get tend to get buried in large anonymous graves are poor people or people without family or people who are unclaimed or unidentified. So people who've been, you know, at the margins of society or who have mental illnesses or who've been unhoused and, you know, living on the streets. And, like, it's just, it's just infuriating that, that those people are just viewed as nothing. There are plenty of communities in this country and all around the world where people are not 
disconnected from death at all, where it, it is something that they grief is a part of their lives. It is something that they, uh, you know, can talk more openly about. Um, or it's also because of, uh, of factors of state violence, mostly. Um, it just is a com- like death is a continual weight on particular communities. And I think that that may no longer be so much the case um, that a lot of the people that we talk about when we talk about people being disconnected from death or being in denial of death are in that position because they are in a relatively incredibly privileged position in terms of resources, in terms of race, uh, in terms of, of all of the factors that go into determining, um, you know, various outcomes. I think some of those people, it's pot- it, there's a potential for, you know, um, people who have been privileged enough to be relatively isolated or insulated from death uh, to be unfortunately sort of forced to confront the fact that we are very, very fragile creatures. Despite all of our best efforts, uh, we cannot get around this <laughs> this um, virus problem. Obviously, all of the choices that we have uh, are highly constrained by capitalism, are highly constrained by um, both material and cultural factors. Uh, but within you know the scope of power that we do have, I'd just like to see people consider exercising some of it, consider taking some of the power that's left on the table, uh, you know, for themselves, you know, thinking about their own deaths. I mean, uh, a lot of our funerary practices, our contemporary funerary practices are not so great from an ecological standpoint. Um, and, you know, I'd really like to see people think about, you know, why would, why wouldn't I want to, why wouldn't I want my final disposition to be something that did not, uh, have, you know, um, a bunch of carbon output involved or potential contamination of the water table and so forth. Um, But I'd also like, you know, I'd like to see people think about that in all arenas of their lives. And that's a really difficult and unfair expectation, I think, to place on people as individuals. Um, So, you know, I, I think as a unit, coming together, um, the Death Cafe and the Death Collective are about trying to build community level um, empowerment when it comes to our end of life practices and death care practices. And I mean, it's not much, but it's, it's real estate. I guess I'm heartened somewhat, uh, hopeful because I am seeing some of these conversations happen. Some of the stuff that that the death cafes have been talking about for years, people are now sharing like wildfire. Like um, there's a one particular article, I can't remember what it is, but it's it's about what happens when you're on a ventilator and like what really happens when you're on a ventilator. And And then it kind of moves into, you know, think about it. Think about your end of life. Think about whether you actually want to be on on a ventilator and 
Um, I've been seeing that article all over the place. I think that hopefully people are realizing a little bit closer um, their mortality and and realizing that that one they need to have a plan two they can have a plan and three maybe that plan doesn't just have to to be limited to you know a dnr or a do not resuscitate order or whether you, whether or not you want to be on a ventilator or put on a ventilator if you have to be but it might be able to expand into well what are my what are my funerary wishes what what would it look like? What would my funeral look like? I hope this I hope this conversation doesn't go away after all of this because it's still going to be important for people to think about you know what they really want and you know talk about talk with their folks, talk with their grandparents about what they want and and also especially for for you know queer communities and people whose rela- family relationships are less stable about they they might be able to begin thinking about who they want in charge of their end of life decisions and w- how to make those decisions now and how to how to put those those decisions in writing or in in some sort of legal document so that they can be respected. You know, the fact that that having conversations uh, about end of life care and and you know alternative death practices sometimes feels like uh, small acts of resistance. Um, it does. You know, if you can get if you can get your 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 dad who's like you know, doesn't talk about anything serious to actually have a conversation about what they want their funeral to be like, what they want the, their end of life care to be like. Um, you know, if you can get someone to reject all of the programming that says like, no, only weirdos talk about death and like thinking about your own death is weird and it means that you're sick and you, um, you know, you need help. Uh, or you're suicidal. Yeah, yeah. If you think about that at all, you're, you know, you're a danger to yourself or others. Um, like, well, I think about it all the time. Like, yeah. shouldn't we? Shouldn't we all? Yeah, and I mean, it, it really can. I think feel like this. Um, yeah, like small, small, small act of democratization, small act of empowerment for, you know, individuals to have power at least over at least power to think about and talk about this universal inevitability. 